So the book of Jude, as I've said before, is 461 words. It is packed with practical insight. Last week we had church on Facebook. That was weird, let's be honest. I was in my socks. My wife led worship on the couch. If you think it was cool to watch from your side, you should have felt the awkwardness on our side. It was just strange because the way I did this is I popped uh, like the little sucker thing you put in your car to hold your phone. I just put that on the front window of our old ranch-style house, and so I opened the curtains, and I was just staring outside the front window, which was really weird because like the UPS guy came at one point um, to drop something off, and just waving at him, and then I, I happened to wear a white hoodie, which um, we're going to talk about glory today, and I was glowing in glory because I, I couldn't close the curtains anymore without it being dark. It's a whole thing. Uh, we had fun. So if you uh, got to see that and that was a blessing to you, I'm thrilled. Uh, Facebook tells us that 2,000 people have checked in and watched some of that video, and so that's a thing. We don't have 2,000 chairs, so God used it in a really cool way. Today we're closing Jude's letter. Jude closes his letter, and so we're going to get in and kind of dig into what does that mean. Jude's letter is part warning, part exhortation. What he's done through this letter is he's kind of like an Old Testament minor prophet where he's sort of all outrage and warning at the culture at large. He looks at the stumbling people around them, and he warns them not only of the stumbling blocks, but, but he never lets the stumbler off the hook either which I think is really, is really good. Like life is hard, Jude is saying, but you're still responsible. And so each of us have to stay engaged and, and continue to fight. So the subtitle for the whole series, Contend for the Faith, is seen over and over and over where Jude is saying, look, life is hard, but you got to try. You got to keep contending. You have to keep fighting. You are responsible. Throughout the series, we've talked about living in a, a culture that is not necessarily for us. And so we've likened it to paddling upstream against the current of the culture. And so we've been living, uh, as we would describe it, as upstream people, where maybe the larger culture is, a, is, is going the other direction, but we've been challenged to contend for something greater. And so we live in a way that we do not uh, actually attempt to change the culture itself, but to live such countercultural lives that it would reflect Christ upon the world. So Jude is practical, he's instructive, but he can't leave the letter like that. He ultimately needs to anchor it in something beyond his good intentions or his good teaching. And so Jude closes his letter with praise. He ends it by returning full focus to God. So we're going to read it here. I'll put it on the screen. Jude, uh, verse 24. Jude closes his letter by saying, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before, and, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. He's given all these warnings and all these exhortations, and he's challenging the believers. And then he closes by saying, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, be glory and honor and majesty and authority and power. That I'm telling you what to do, but it's ultimately glory to him. It's ultimately about something greater. And this is called the doxology. If you have a certain Bible, it'll even say as a little heading there above that passage, it'll say doxology, which is an English word um, created out of a Greek word, doxa, which just means glory. And so it's just the oral or, or written presentation of glory is all it is. And so this has been a thing that throughout the years has become woven into modern Western Christianity. There's a hymn called the doxology, praise God to whom all blessings flow. And so if you know that one, praise God to whom all blessings, right? I, that's as close as you're ever going to get me to singing. That was written in 1674. 
And it wasn't written as a hymn. It was written as the ending to do two different hymns because somebody read Jude and read the letters and read the, the epistles and saw these doxologies showing up over and over. And this guy named Thomas Ken was like, oh, that's cool. So after you do like this truth telling, then you, you tack praise at the end to remind everybody what it's all about. And so two different hymns he had written, he, he tagged that. Praise God to whom all blessings flow. And it became its own hymn as people love that part most. Now it's sung in churches all over the world. Jude gives us a last verse of his own, I think. If the book of Jude is something like a song, then this is that last verse that he gives us that wants to root it in something greater than simply his instruction. In glory and majesty and power and authority, Jude is in effect saying, don't just listen to me, listen to me because of him, because of something greater. He anchors his delivery to more than his own renown, but he anchors everything we've read in the book of Jude to God's goodness and his transcendence. I would say it this way, a praise is what he's giving us. Praise stands like a jetty reaching out into the roiling, turbulent seas of life. A solid place of truth to which our souls can be more. Jude gives praise at the end of this letter of instruction, this hard encouragement and this exhortation. And, and Jude gives this, like, this jutting out finger of reality into the turbulent seas of life. And I see whenever we praise, this is how it feels to me. And the language, you know, I wrote this out and I was like, that feels really overwrought. It just kind of feels stuffy. And yet every time I keep coming back to him, I'm like, there's nothing I would change about this. Praise feels like a jetty out into the turbulent seas, a place to which our souls can really moor themselves, to which we can anchor to something greater than the chaos around us. Robert can throw a picture of the jetty up in case you're wondering what a jetty is or you've forgotten what it looks like. This is a jetty. You'll notice there's two different bits of ocean. It's the same ocean. And even on a pleasant day, there's white caps as the waves roll in on one side. And on the opposite side, it's almost like they're in a pond. There's nothing happening. The current is stilled. The waves are stilled. It's a, it's a break in the current. Jetty is a thin man-made peninsula. It's basically we add some land out into the sea. It breaks the current. It creates a safe harbor. So you'll always see a jetty around where a marina is going to be. People can walk out onto the water and and stand steady. Jetty is a ready-made anchor in the ocean. It is built with rocks, stones. You'll see different types. They have some that are like formed into these shapes that sort of almost lock together. But they're rocks that are too heavy for even the ocean to move. The current can't take that rock with it, and it may erode the beach, but the jetty still stands. How many times have you seen in the aftermath of a hurricane, and they show the destruction of wherever got hit on the coast, and they'll first show you the pier, and there'll be a few posts left standing or a few boards from the boardwalk that are still floating around, and the pier is destroyed. They never show you the jetty, because after the storm comes through, the jetty still looks like this, because it's immovable. When waves lash us in life, we have to remember that the rock won't move. When we find ourselves in a storm in life, we remember the rock won't move. When we are punched by life and we are woozy on our feet, we remember the rock won't move. That if we simply find ourselves moored to something greater than ourselves, if we moor ourselves and anchor ourselves to God, then we are attached to the unshakable and the immovable. And this is interesting because it's both good and bad, both in good seasons and bad seasons. Most of us think about this stuff and we go, I need an anchor for when stuff is negative. I need an anchor during tragedy and trial. I need an anchor during sorrow and suffering. I need an anchor to when the winds are blowing and the hurricane's coming through. That's when I need an anchor because that's when life feels like it's all going every which way. The reality is uh, pride will allow us to think we don't need an anchor when everything looks good outside, but the current is still there unseen, dragging us and drifting. 
And so we have to be very careful. I was talking to Coach Huger, the BGSU basketball coach, this morning, and I was, you know, they, they just, their 10-game winning streak just got snapped. And he's all smiles. And I knew why he was all smiles. I said, you're all smiles because you lost. And he goes, I'm never happy to lose. But he goes, you can't coach guys when you've won 10 in a row. Because everybody feels like everything they're doing is, is great. So you can't coach when you're winning like that. You can give them a instruction. You can tell them you need to work on this or this has to be crisp and this has to be tight. But he, he goes, they don't have to listen. They've won 10 games in a row. Why do they need me? And he goes, then you lose. And everybody goes, oh, let's go watch the film. What did we do wrong? And so even in the good times, we have to find ourselves anchored to something greater than our own performance because we can trick ourselves into thinking that we got this figured out and then we're too far from anything when the storm finally comes back. And we've forgotten all that got us there in the first place. Praise returns our focus to God and breaks the current that attempts to pull us away from truth. Uh, Steph and I, when we were in South Africa for a couple of years, we, we would do funeral after funeral after funeral. AIDS is uh, a problem, to understate it radically. There were weeks we would do three, four, five funerals in a week. You do Monday afternoon, and then you do Tuesday morning and Tuesday afternoon, and then there'd be another one on Thursday morning. And one after another, these families would come in having lost loved ones, and we were there, and she led uh, worship. And there were two types of funerals we learned pretty quickly. There was the funeral where everybody came in sad, and then they maybe sang a song because they were supposed to or because we suggested it or they just needed, you know, that's just what you do. So would you just sing Amazing Grace? And then they leave sad. There was a different kind of funeral that people would come in sad and they would say, but this was his favorite song or this is the truth that we have to stick with or this is something we need to remember in this time. And they would sing three, four, five songs that all had this personal meaning to them that rooted them to something greater. And they would leave sad too, but they left sad with a different hope. And there's something about that. When we walk through trial and and we walk through sorrow, you can, you can show up sad and leave sad, but there's a different thing when you've, re- when you've rooted yourself to praise, you leave sad but with hope. Something greater that you know is on the horizon. The praise doesn't get rid of our emotions. Praise doesn't eliminate the thing we're going through. Praise doesn't get rid of our sorrow, but it roots us to a hope that's greater than our sorrow. Jude's doxology is maybe just that, as he's giving people really difficult advice. Hey, this is hard stuff. And you're going to leave feeling a little beaten down after you, after you read this letter, guys. But listen, it's about something greater. Praise is an anchor for our lives. It is that immovable object that roots us to truth and keeps us from drifting. And the question becomes, then, why do we need this? Okay, that sounds fine on all, but why do I actually need praise? What do you mean? Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on Jude, said it this way. He said, there is no stability in any Christian in himself considered. It is the grace of God within him that enables him to stand. And this is truth that we have to really internalize. He says, there is no stability in any Christian in himself considered, that none of us on our own have the ability to weather life. That the only stability we have, the only grace that allows us to stand after we've been pummeled by life is the grace of God. That each of us as sinners have fallen short, each of us have tried and failed, and each of us are requiring something greater. And through the sacrifice of Christ, we stand in him And we stand stable only in his stability. We're in the calm that that comes after the storm because he is the calm, not because we figure something out. The waves never stop crashing. The current never stops pulling. We are not strong enough to withstand it. And pride says, I can do it alone. But practice, for anyone who's lived, knows that every boat drifts, that every single one of us stumbles, that even the best among us in the room are incapable of standing on our own. And we've tried. 
And there are moments of pride in our life when we, we decide that, you know what, I don't need anybody. I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to just knuckle down on bootstraps, whatever American cliche you want, that I'm just going to work harder and get it right. And work harder and get it right doesn't work. Every one of us drifts. Every one of us stumbles. And doxology at the end of Jude's letter is almost a drive towards humility, if you think about it. It's a drive towards humility that, that says, I can't do this on my own. There's something greater than me out there. So he says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, acknowledging that all stumble and there is one who is able to keep us from further stumbling. There's one who is the stabilizing force. There's one who's the anchor for my soul. The writer of Hebrews, speaking of God's promises and the hope of an inheritance of salvation, said that this way, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. The hope of our salvation becomes the anchor for our souls. But implicit in there is that our our souls require an anchor. That we can't do this without it. And so in praise, we become anchored to Jesus and his promises. In praise, we are anchored to his glorious presence. In praise, we find out what it means to live in glory. Jude mentions glory twice in in this doxology of his. He says, present you before his glorious presence or the presence of his glory without fault and with great joy. So, so we appeal to God and we praise Jesus who can present us to the Father as blameless in glory. And then he says later, to God be the glory. First thing we take on this is this without fault. He says, present you without fault and with great joy. That Jesus presents you to the Father without fault, with great joy. What does that mean? We so rarely appreciate this aspect of God's goodness because we can quietly convince ourselves over our lives that we are pretty good people. And as pretty good people, no one has to present me as as worthy because I'm doing a pretty good job. You ever been totally busted for something and found without fault? You ever done something really dumb and walked away from it and felt really strangely good about leaving? When I was uh, in college, I spent a long summer working on the Riverwalk as a, a waiter in San Antonio. I work for this Italian restaurant, and uh, the, the restaurant industry is known for being kind of a tough, it's a tough place. It's late nights, long hours, high stress. There's a lot of drug abuse, a lot of alcoholism. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on in the restaurant industry that's not real pleasant. And so I spent a summer working at this uh, downtown San Antonio restaurant, and it was all of that. It was just as rough as we thought it was going to be. Uh, there was a guy who I worked with. He said, please call me Jennifer. I'm saving up for my transition. And I was like, I didn't even know what that meant. It's like 2001. I thought, what does that even mean? So he starts explaining it to me. And as we're doing our prep work for the day, me and my new dude friend named Jennifer, and I was like, this is, this is different. This is out of the bubble a little bit. And I'm cutting the lemons and he's cutting uh, the basil because we're doing the prep work for the chefs before we get started for the dinner. And, and he goes, hey, do you mind switching me? Uh, can I do the lemons and you do the basil? And I was like, I'm pretty new here. Is that harder? Or what, what are you saying? He goes, no, when I, anything, if I chop anything real small, like I have to chop this, it just reminds me of, of cocaine and I start having issues and I don't, I just can't be around. I can't do that. I was like, oh, oh yeah, this is getting, okay, this is a rough place. And so one night after another, we're kind of interacting with, with these folks that I, I'm learning a whole new side of life I never knew. And I'm understanding some, some things I'd never really understood before. And one night, 
Dinner service closes, and it's like 2, 2.30 in the morning when we finally get done, and we get cleaned up, and everything's done. And, and one of my coworkers, this woman, comes to me, and she goes, hey, can you give me a ride home? Uh, my daughter was supposed to take me, but uh, she got sick or something happened, so I want to, can you just take me home? And I was like, sure, why not? 2.30 in the morning, what else am I going to do? She goes, can we stop off? I want to check on her before we go. Can we just stop off? She's just right here on the east side. And San Antonio's east side is, is a really rough neighborhood, really, really rough neighborhood, and I knew it a little bit because the, the Spurs arena is over there and the Alamo Dome is over there. And so I'd done a bunch of stuff around that. So I kind of knew the neighborhood, but I also knew it's not a neighborhood you really wanted to be in at two in the morning. And so she goes, yeah, yeah, just take a left here and a right here. And I'm, I'm, I'm going from recognizing these main streets to feeling a little bit shaky about these back streets. And she goes, that's the house there, but can you stop right here? And I said, sure. And something in me is like, something's not quite right. She hops out of the car. She goes, I'll be right back. I'm just going to check on my daughter. She starts walking away. She goes into the house. A few minutes later, she comes out, and she's tucking something into her shirt. And I said, I don't know if there's a daughter here. Uh, Lights start flashing, and and she goes from I'll be right back to me being in the back of the police car. The cops show up. They pull up behind me, and, and I come to find out that we had been stopped in front of the most notorious crack house in the city. Now, you may be thinking, you were not there for drugs, and yet I'm completely guilty of um, ferrying this woman to come buy drugs. I'm com- my ignorance and my stupidity to go there at 2.30 in the morning has me completely guilty as well. And so I'm sitting in the back of this police car on one hand saying, you know what, I had nothing to do with this. I'm totally innocent. And on the other hand going, yeah, but I'm such an idiot and it's totally my fault. And yeah, if I end up in jail, this will be a really interesting story to talk my way out of. And if you've never sat in the back of a police car, it's a little tighter than you think. I knew better than to be there. I was naive in the moment. I think I was just tired, and it just never occurred to me. A cop comes back, and they're talking to me, and another unit shows up, and they're talking to me, and another unit shows up, and they're talking to me, and I'm starting to wonder if they're going to stop talking and start driving, and I'm done for the night. And one comes up to the, the, the door, and he opens the door, and he goes, listen, we think you're in the wrong neighborhood. And I said, I don't know why you think that, but I'm thrilled you think that. And I couldn't decide if it was my... Uh, scared, stupid look on my face or white privilege. It was probably both. And they said, you don't look like you belong here and we're going to let you go. But if we see you here again, we're going to know that you're here on purpose and you're not going to get out of here. And I was like, okay, fair enough. They let her go too because they didn't check everywhere that she had stashed things. I come to find out as I'm driving home, I'm going, okay, now I know exactly what happened. We don't talk much. It's got a little awkward because she knew that I almost got arrested for driving her to the crack house that she didn't tell me we were going to unless daughter is code word that I didn't know, in which case I had a lot to learn. And I had this overwhelming feeling of, uh, I would just call it the adrenaline of grace as we drove home. I went from being totally tired from a long shift with um, poor tipping tourists in downtown San Antonio and feeling just totally beaten down by the day to going home totally alive. And you know that feeling when you get away with something, you're like, whoa. And I had this adrenaline of grace that, that was the feeling of having been found without fault. Even when I wasn't totally innocent, now I wasn't totally guilty, but there was a lot of dumb stuff I did that could have gotten me in way hotter water than I was even in. And so being found without fault left me feeling great joy. I found this great adrenaline in the grace that I had experienced. And I think in that moment, driving her home and dropping her off and rolling the window down and just kind of taking my time getting home from there, I felt true praise that I had been delivered from something that I probably shouldn't have been delivered from. That could have gone a whole lot worse. What I realized in that day, when I realized when I think back of that experience, is praise anchors us in truth. 
Praise anchors us in truth and it ushers us into glory. It ushers us into something greater. We're brought into his glory and found worthy to be standing there, not because of how good we are, but because how graceful he is. When, when we find ourselves in moments of praise, it isn't about how good we are. When we sing these songs, we're not singing about how great I did a great job, how great is our God. It's different. We find ourselves in glory. David H. Stern says that even this Greek word glory here in the book of Jude is best rendered as the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Shekinah. This, this Hebrew term for glory that Moses experienced the Shekinah glory of God, he came out unspeakably radiant, having just been in the reflected presence of God. And that word kept coming up, radiant. Over and over, it's just radiant glory, radiant glory, radiant glory. Anybody have a radiate heater in their house? You have been in an old building that's got a radiator heater? What does it do? It puts off heat. How? It just sort of radiates it out. It's not blowing it out. It's just radiant. And this idea for glory that that is rooted in praise, this idea that Jude is giving us is that the beauty of the Christian life is that it is radiant. It is just radiating out. And sometimes you don't even know where it's coming from, but you can feel it, you can taste it, you can see it. It's radiant. It's the divine presence, Stern says, a revelation of the holy in the midst of the profane. I thought that was the most beautiful phrase ever. I'm going to steal it later. A revelation of holy in the midst of the profane. That this life we live in this world of darkness, in this place of hurt, in the the ongoing story of heartbreak that each of us walk through, that every single person is in this battle. Every single person is fighting a fight. Every single person is dealing with something in a world that is profane. That there is this, this little presence, this revelation of holy, of separateness, that there's an innocence in a land of guilt. Jesus came and said in John eight twelve, he said, I'm the light of the world. Jesus says he came in glory. He came in glory and he's the light of the world. And I don't think those two things shouldn't be tied. They should be tied closely together. He came to return the world to peace, to shalom, this, this created wholeness. Before sin and evil corrupted the earth the way that things were supposed to be. And so you would say, what does this look like? Okay, I get the idea, maybe, but what does it actually look like in Scripture? In Mark 4, you may remember the story of there's a storm that comes up and Jesus is sleeping and his, the disciples call him up on the, on the boat and they say, hey, we're all going to die. The storm is overtaking us. The waves are crashing over. We're going to tip over. We're going to drown. What are you going to do about it? You're just going to sleep? To which Jesus says, quiet, be still. And the water finds perfect stillness. And his disciples in disbelief of even their disbelief, say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? The radiant glory of Christ on display as in the midst of the most violent storm they'd ever encountered, he speaks and it's still. In a world where the waves never stop crashing and the current will never stop pulling, we are included in that stillness. A revelation of holy in the midst of the profane. A revelation of stillness in the midst of the storm. A revelation of hope in the midst of your heartbreak. A revelation of light in your season of darkness. We are included in that in Christ. Because we've been cleared of blame. We've been called free. Through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we have been included in those who call themselves separate and holy. The storm of our lives, the storm of our sin has been stilled. So you and I are no longer lashed by the waves. We're anchored in an immovable Christ. It's something wholly better. And then we're sent to set God's people right. 
And this is where it gets a lot to be fun for us, is, is we're not just saved to be saved, we're saved to be sent. We're sent to set God's people right. We're sent, that just like Jesus, who came to redeem the world, we're here to then begin the restoration process with others. We carry the light now. That we become the bringers of glory. That we become those who radiate goodness and mercy and hope and glory to others. In John 20, Jesus said, Peace be with you, shalom, in your soul. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Just as the Father sent me, Jesus, to come and bring glory to this place to restore your soul, I'm sending you out to go do that for others. I'm sending you out. Carriers of light. Bringers of stillness in the storms of others' lives. I'm sending you out. If you are willing, if you will be who I say you are, If you will lean into the calling I have for you, I'm sending you out. This is most clearly seen in a life of praise. When you live out a life of praise, that is when you radiate God's glory most clearly. When you are light, even in a sense of darkness, when you are still, even in your storm, that is when we carry the presence of God most clearly. People say, what is going on with you that you're going through this and you're still able to say that? When we are anchored in the hope of our salvation, we become beacons of glory for others. And you and I become lighthouses on the edge of that jetty. On the furthest point, we become lighthouses that point to the safe harbor, that point to salvation. You and I cannot save people. That is God's work. That's the Holy Spirit drawing people to himself. But you and I are called to be a lighthouse on the end of the furthest point to say this way to safe harbor, this way to salvation, this way to stillness, this way out of the storm, this way away from the rocks. And that calling is a holy calling. That is a calling unto glory. We are to be a revelation of the holy in the midst of the profane. And I can't think of a more profound or beautiful way to say what we have been called into. We have been called to become the holy in the midst of the profane. So may we remember that praise is an anchor for our lives and a movable object that roots us in truth and keeps us from being swept away by the winds and waves of a season or the quiet current of everyday life. May our lives be a living doxology, a real-time revelation of God's goodness for all to see. May we be anchored in nothing less than him and may our lives reflect that and radiate that to a world that is desperate for his presence. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would confess that when the wind blows, our first inclination is to steady ourselves and to stand in our own strength. When the storms of life come, it is our effort that we rely on. When things are good, when life seems to be going well, we don't think to root in you first. We think to anchor in our own good fortune, our own good deeds. Father, my prayer is that we as a people would anchor ourselves in nothing less than you. That we would recognize that uh, you are the ultimate source of our wholeness and our stillness of our peace and our salvation. And Father, as we lean into that, we pray that you would allow us to radiate that presence to others. You would allow us to be little ambassadors of your glory. Father, I pray that you would challenge us deeply in that as we consider who it is in our lives that is going through something 
that needs us to be that lighthouse pointing towards safe harbor. Or maybe it's our own lives and we have to remember where salvation really is. Father, I pray that you would draw us close, that you would keep us close. God, in doing so, that we would uh, embrace you again as Father. We would rest in you as Savior. God, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.